you're back here with Sabira and Gar of the Selling Circular podcast. We were just talking about how do we define this podcast? And ultimately, we were trying to come up with some sort of concise statement of which we could then showcase, but frankly, it's a little bit more abstract than that on, on what we're trying to do with circular economy because the, the term is abstract. And what we're trying to do here on this podcast is create a community in which we can bring uh, our colleagues, our peers, leaders that we want to learn from into this microphone, into this uh, digital studio of which we can then have a conversation about what it means to be a circular business, what that means to be providing circularity as a solution, and the wonderful, how did you say, ups and wonderful downs, the ins and, scary. and outs, and it's and the scary, mess of it all. <laughs> and the mess of it all, because at the end of the day, as Sabira yeah. said, we're selling to people and you know we're trying to connect as many people to these solutions and that's the fun part of of what we're trying to do in this in this circular movement uh we are going to bring to you today uh talking about re-commerce and resale and Sabir and i were just talking about how what a great new burgeoning model of re-commerce and resale this is and how the growth is trending upwards and there's so many cool peer-to-peer -peer brands but it's it's really old it's really old, ancient, really. And I guess like for a good reason, right? Like we lived in villages before we had to count on each other in ways that we don't really do today. And there is economic opportunity in resale. There is economic opportunity in circulating things. And people realize that, right? A long, long time ago. Uh, and I always like, I, I spent a lot of time growing up and going to India and I think the even my grandfather had like a scrap steel shop which I don't know if I told you but it's like no it's kind of in my blood yeah and actually oh, Omar, funny. <laughs> Omar's dad's family were like bottle for recyclers. context your yeah. your your, uh, your, actor, your actor your actor <laughs> husband which we don't have to get into but yes continue <laughs> their their family did bottle recycling in India Whoa. and there's just such a long, and that's like, you know, in the last generation. Yeah. I think before that, there's uh, just a ton of um, informal network that keeps Second Life and resale alive that has kept, and technology really wasn't involved. Like, when I was living in India, I would be woken up by a guy, like, shouting that, sell me your paper right no like way that's, that's the daily routine like he has his roots well, and it's that's fundamentally what he does. yeah it's fundamentally a service that was provided to right. continue to extract value out of something that was created or turn it back into something that someone else would like and we started this conversation pre-recording but we'll bring you into it now of the most successful models ones of which I couldn't really necessarily find the uh, the growth trajectory of or the the total market value of, but of mom and pop bookstores, used bookstores, and the record stores, and again those those models that st that popped up with when someone was done with the record or the book, well, you bring it to the local shop, and that's where the community was based. That's where ultimately you were finding people that 
you know, wanted to engage with you on that, maybe that topic. Um, but that's, that's completely old, um, and, and, and old in the best way. And I'm not saying that derogatorily at all. It's, it was, it was bringing the community together. Now we, we live in a, in a, in a, a system now of which that's been made obsolete. Um, not, not obsolete by lack of human interest, I think made obsolete by the convenience of technology. Um, so there's a good and a bad that comes with that. Uh, but this new re-commerce landscape is really on the move. And what we can talk today about is the world of fashion re-commerce. And I think, again, this is a model that's not new. We, you and I are big fans of goodwill, um, of going to these places of which clothing is aggregated and finding the value and finding the things that speak to us. That was, it's always, it's always been the fun part. Yeah, it's actually kind of been a game. And I actually, I kind of want to reflect on Goodwill and, and even the feeling of re-commerce, that, that old feeling, like older right. generations, like my, I'm telling you about my experience in India, but if you talk to my mom and when I would talk to her about shopping secondhand, going to thrift store, there's a very, originally there was like a very no thanks, like that's not for us kind of hmm. reaction that um, there's like, you don't know what's happened before. Um, let's not like take on the energy of the person. I was going to say, is that a juju you. conversation? Definitely okay. juju, oh. right? Like oh, some real juju feelings. And it took a long time for me to convince her to change her mind. And if you look at the, huh. like the stats on, uh, perception by generation right like gen z millennials are way more responsive and are interested in purchasing pre-owned things as compared to the boomer generation right the post-war well, generation and that's it, like time of time and like awareness helps well, that's, yeah use that and we'll we'll get to this with our guest coming up um who we will introduce when we round out our host chat but um you know, as as we're looking at these stats, we've got by 2027, we have uh, the growth of the, if we just focus on apparel, the apparel industry is looking to grow towards what seemed like I could find roughly $900 billion market globally. The reuse- Just apparel. Just apparel. So that's, that's a massive growing economy again of, but the reuse uh, aspect of this, the secondary market of apparel is looking to grow to around 350 billion. Um, and, you know, ultimately all the research is showing that that re-commerce, that resale effort is outpacing the, the, the new apparel industry. Um, and that in our, for our generation, we're getting over the juju. We're getting over <laughs> this this idea that you know there's there's bad energy in that hoodie and I don't want it in my life. To oh no, that's legacy. That's now that's something I can embrace. And even if it might have a, a maybe it was a bonfire hoodie and it has a little hole in in the sleeve that that can be embraced and stitched up or has some sort of story to it. But that's that's huge yeah. for us in embracing that story. Yeah. And also like thrifting, I think even before, but more so now, I, I don't know, it feels fun. Um, right. Or you feel like you've won. There's some 
some kind of like psychological feedback yeah yeah dopamine kick of like (laughs) hey this still has a new with tag situation happening and i'm paying i can see what the original price was and i'm paying way less than that like there's some there's like i think that's the the treasure economic win yeah the treasure hunter there's also like the style win right like i'm finding either something that like looks great on me that doesn't feel like it's from a box store and um i could experiment with stuff at a much more affordable rate than i might have like i'm not gonna go out there and experiment with like huge jeans because i don't know if i'm really gonna love them so i like the like style feedback or like exploration um that comes at a much more affordable cost too which i think the younger generation loves and tiktok and instagram also support like other 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 digital platforms in addition to re-commerce technology have amplified the benefits of resale and and i think this is a business and i'm I'm going to point to uh an article on on medium that that sabira and i were sharing um that breaks down what re-commerce actually is in this apparel landscape now and it did it in a great way which i hadn't really thought about before, which was almost the, uh, frankly, the enablement platforms now. And this is, again, these are the technologies that have replaced probably uh, the hunting and sorting and finding your local thrift shop grail. Um, but now you're being algorithmically fed um, something or you're searching digitally for that that piece that maybe. be... Um, wasn't you know now they're not owned by thrift shops now it might be a peer-to-peer exchange or it's a brand-owned exchange and and in a lot of ways there's some of the biggest names that we have uh are a part of this re-commerce effort you've got stock x and goat and stadium goods that focused on uh sneakers um the classic one that's been around forever that's always been changing the game which is ebay um and 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 continues to again be a, a resale hotspot um, but some of the newer ones could be in the furniture space um, or in the fashion space. Like again, you've got ThreadUp or Debop, um, uh, and then and then Poshmark as well. And so all of these are names that maybe we don't we think of as just technology that's out there in a, in a platform in which, but they're a part of a broader ecosystem that's all based on trying to capture that value of that sweatshirt that has been pre-loved and try to figure out how to connect it back to the next user. And so that's all a part of this circular movement. And that is all a part of this re-commerce resale uh, growth that we're going to see in the Mm -hmm. next five years. Yeah. And thanks for linking to that medium article, because I think the landscape visual that the author outlined is really telling of just the volume of opportunity and you could think of literally every product type in the world and there should be a re-commerce solution for each one of those specialized because each you know as the internet we get the long tail of the internet and you have smaller and more niche communities like people want specific things they want specific feelings out of the things that they want in their lives right it's more about the experience and less about the function and utility although there's room for both of course but um, I, I see that uh, becoming more fragmented in yeah. a good way um, where you can find, you know, really what you're looking for. I think the like kitchen sink uh, category, right? Everything available. Yeah. That's yeah, also an interesting play. 
Yeah, you yeah, have to, you, you yeah, gotta, yeah. You gotta, that's like that Goodwill model. Right. You really gotta like find treasure hunt what you're the looking for. The bare minimum then be the Craigslist model where you are, you're right. sifting. You're just sifting through digital listing. Right, yes. Which is like kind of a weird ASMR, like, I don't know, visual experience. of just, <laughs> I do find myself doing that. Like I'm thread up, right? Like I know, or even Poshmark, I tried on a blazer, yeah. a, a, a men's blazer at um a store i can't pronounce is it jose bank jose bank oh yeah uh yes. you know uh, yes i do know. i don't yes. know yeah, yeah yeah i'm brown you can blame me for that um <laughs> and i don't know i <laughs> loved it oh good yeah. we're in the yeah, same yeah. boat yeah, I, I know the brand i've just always <laughs> seen it as yes the yeah. letters more than pronouncing pronounce it yeah pronounce it <laughs> Loved this blazer. I didn't yeah. know is this particular style of blazer. I can't even remember the name, but I like tried to find it, and then I tried to find it on Poshmark and ThreadUp, and I didn't end up finding that particular thing. But visually, the like journey of scrolling, right? Like as yeah. an Instagram yeah. kid, it felt relaxing and like that hunting kind of mentality. I was right? Curious to just how scroll, you're going to bring scroll, it back scroll, to scroll. the. <laughs> The ASMR aspect of this, that, that it's almost, again, it's therapeutic and it's the yeah. equivalent of, again, you know, there is a little bit of that of, of, it's kind of funny that you say that, the therapeutic aspect is similar to moving the hanger across the rail yeah. in a thrift store that you're just, yeah. you're, you're in a, you're in a mode and you're, you're looking for that specific vibe frankly of of mm -hmm. or, or or look or feel of an item but except you just do this now digitally um i yeah. like what you said about you you mentioned um a marketplace type and in this article that we were referencing that we can post in the description below is is really breaking down the marketplaces from a very technology uh forward thinking standpoint as well which is in our world it's it's either peer-to-peer -peer or it's managed um, and in a lot of ways, a peer to peer could be um, how we all think of this is I'm I'm selling directly with someone in my community and they found what I had of value. And that's going to be directly peer to peer as opposed to a more managed marketplace in which there's maybe a third party um, intermediary that is probably going to take some margin, add some cost to that that item that you're getting. But that cost that they're adding provides validity that that item is actually in good quality um and so there's you can get quality with a peer-to-peer -peer, but you're going to have maybe a more consistent managed experience if you're going mm -hmm. through probably any one of those managed uh marketplaces maybe trove uh being a an example recurate to some degree also being an example of of solutions that are trying to uh, filter for that type of value that can be delivered to you as a user. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And actually that to pull the thread on that. So there's also a distinction between the, being the technology that facilitates the, the transactions like for the buyers and sellers versus being the platform that powers right. the like end to end process of branding logistics resale right. for brands that want to to go down the path of resale that that yes. want don't want to see their items or, or want to capture some of the opportunity because they've seen their clothing 
already on ThreadUp, already on Poshmark and other people benefiting from the resale. So they also want a piece. And so there's the technology opportunity there as well, um, which like, again, goes to say that, that in every industry, I think that's possible because every industry has different logistics, different economics, different user psychology. So yeah. I don't think you're going to have a one size fits all kind of solution necessarily. No, I, th- I think you're exactly right. And I think we're going to find that too, as more e-commerce takes off, each brand is going to choose the solution that fits their identity um, of a brand, but also the the target market of who they're going to try to try to reach. Um, I, I agree with that. What what is sort of your favorite thing to think about or future vision of what this is going to mean? Uh, you know, and I can start off too if if you need a beat. Which is, I love the idea of tracking clothing, um, and I, I started to poke more around into the digital IDs of what this means and that kind of gets to again not to just call it consistently call it back but the the juju aspect of where this clothing is if we can start to really understand um from a almost a, a lineage a provenance standpoint of where something has been um it's going to help maintain the value of an item um but ultimately continue the story and I love that aspect of, of continuing to track pieces of clothing where you might buy something from a managed marketplace or from another person and could go and scan that piece of clothing, tag that, that maybe that RFID chip in that hoodie or whatever it is and understand its lineage, understand which country it was in before it was in your country, which city did it exist in before you now own it. And there's a cool future of connecting those dots that actually, now that I think about it, kind of live might be very additive to our our sort of communal framework of, mm. of being more interconnected. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a little bit mm-hmm. there too that I actually think yeah. that's going to be really empowering for us to know that, oh, this person that owned this thing actually now lives or lived in the UK or this person lived in Tucson or, or wherever mm-hmm. they might be, but that, that that might be more connective digital mm-hmm. tissue for us all. Yeah, and even like where it was manufactured, who manufactured Or even, uh, of course, yeah. I think you're yeah. exactly right, of, of yeah. really understanding yeah. what it took to make the thing in the first place. You're absolutely yeah. right, the, the education and, there. And I think actually that's an exciting thing for me. I was thinking about, like, how could I know if I actually am buying less stuff or if I'm contributing? Oh, right. How could I know that I'm not contributing to the raw material extraction of new stuff. And that to me is like, I could, I could see a day where something that I purchased a shirt is certified that there's like no new material. And it's not just that it has been recycled. Right. But it's that, um, like it was reused X time. So I know that I'm not, it, it wasn't just made it wasn't just made and I just got it from the person who was the first owner, right? That it had a long life before and that 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 means that, you know, not contributing to more and more and more production of stuff. Um, Yeah. And and we get into that a little bit with our our interview with with Karen Dilley, who is in her own right, uh, quite a re-commerce expert. and so we get into that a little bit when we start talking about rebound effect. And I believe we actually start our interview 
with you asking a question, uh, something that's, of course, uh, your, I think it's actually your first question, uh, interview question here on this podcast, which is great. And you get right into it, right into the weeds. Um, and Karen Dilly, yeah, pack and punches, <laughs> and Karen Dilly answers it excellently. And we have a great conversation with her coming up right now. Just go ahead and restart that thought. Fashion has been the. Fashion has been. <laughs> like, at least the most in our face set of success stories with like the most competitive market of what's happening in circular economy auto might be one but that's because it's such a high value industry and fashion's the exact opposite right like super fast a uh, very high volume but low value items but because it's like in consumer minds that's that's those are some of the reasons why it's been successful but like the rest of the world is still kind of like you know like where not even close to where fashion is. So that's, I'm very curious about, is that actually good for us? And like what you saw in the competitive space, like is fashion the model to follow? Why or why not? Like those are some of the things I I don't know from any insider. Yeah, starting with a softball for sure. Um, I think like this is, Fundamentally, I think this is the hard question. I think fashion is a super interesting space because people touch it literally every single day. Like you wear something. It's also in a lot of ways, um, our society very much glamorizes it. Like we, they have fashion shows at least four times a year. Like there's celebrities and they wear things. I mean, it's, it's gotten even more crazy with like Instagram and TikTok and all of this. And so it is so in our face for so much of our lives. And it is uh, in many ways for people like me, but I think a lot of people like also self-expression and it's like their creativity outlet and things like that. So um, we deal with it all the time. And so for that, it gets a lot of press and it gets a lot of people talking about things. But I think, um, you know, I was, I was at the Global Fashion Summit in Copenhagen a few weeks ago, and there was a lot of of questions around how are we actually making change? Like they could like, they like went from something to action. Like it was everything we're trying to get to like to action. And I think one of the things that particularly resale for fashion brands, um, you know, kind of across the whole spectrum of price is like, what is the adoption of this, these programs, you know, like how much of it, how many items are people really reselling or really recycling or really sending back to be upcycled and how much are brands really changing the way that they talk to their customers about how to engage with them. And that was something we saw at Recurate a ton, which is like, there were some brands who resale was just a checkbox, you know, they were like, okay, we've done it on to the next. And they didn't have a ton of engagement and their customers didn't really know about the program. And then there were brands that were like, no, we are speaking to our customer in a different way. And so that happens on a a very micro level, you know, like, do you put your resale in your emails that you set? And do you talk about it? Do you have influencers who show how to do the resale program? Like, is this a part? Do you even like um, peak design is a great example. When you buy something new, they actually show you what the current resale price is on their marketplace on the PDP. So it's like, it's a part of the buying new experience is to see mm. the resale value. And so talk about like, redefining the way that they think about their engagement with their customer they're they're saying like we know you will resell this and look at what a great value you will get for it and that happens on all these kind of 
smaller level engagement that add up to a very different way of thinking. And to like bring this full circle to the beginning of the conversation, we see a lot of the splashy announcements. We don't see a lot of that change in behavior of the day-to-day interaction with a customer to change the way that they behave. And so you'll like see these, you know, Vogue articles and it's like super exciting of this new upcycled thing, but it's like 25 pieces, you know, which is cool. And we need to start somewhere, but 25 pieces when the brand sells 25 pieces in three seconds, normally like that's just not a massive impact. So I can't tell you as to whether long-term this will play out good or bad. My guess is that, and what I've said, thought for a long time, we are at just the beginning stages of this. Like this is truly just the start of branded resale or thinking really circular in a, in a more obvious way than we have previously. And, um, and we'll see kind of how it, how it plays out. Customers are demanding it. So I think it will play out in a strong way, but how do brands do it? I, I, I think what's your fault. Do you have a follow-up there, Sabira? What do you think is true about the companies that integrate in circular practices in their product, in their operations versus the ones that are splashy? Because if I think about that, like who, who are the people who are making those decisions? It can't just be down. That's my guess. It has to really be um, ingrained in the entire company and the entire motion. So how are those brands getting there? What's true about them? How are they different than the others? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I think m- most obviously people would be like, of course, it's the sustainable brands. And I actually didn't necessarily see those two things go together. What I saw, it was brands who made high quality product. And um, this was their way of standing behind that high quality product. And it's much easier to say, like, we believe in the resale value of this item if there actually is a strong resale value of the item. Um, And there are brands that honestly, historically had built a strong community and a strong voice with their customer and listened to them and engaged with them. And this is just circularity is another way to do that engagement. And so they saw it as an extension of what they were already doing. Um, and to me, the ones that just made a splash, it was this separate thing. You know, it was this, like, we have our business and here's this little altruistic thing we do over here. (laughs) And, um, that to me was like the biggest difference. I really, I noticed that when you made a high quality product, when you engage with your customer to make that product even more high quality, you, it was so easy to stand behind your resale. What I, we talked about this at Circularity in Seattle, where, and we kind of, we are getting at it just now too, of what is the evolution going to be for a program like this? Yeah. When I was jumping on, I jumped on Outer Known. I jumped on um, Michael Kors um, of looking at what, what were their prompts for me as I was sort of trying to look at the inventory and I loved that it was, Hey, log into your profile. So mm-hmm. at circularity, we discussed what the evolution is going to be for the relationship between a brand and a consumer. Yeah. Where is that now? And why is circularity potentially this, this re-commerce of this, why is that going to evolve essentially those brands and those relationships with their, with their consumers? Well, as someone who's been in retail for forever, I think they yeah. have to do it. You know, I, I, I think it's less, 
Can you tell, can you actually, while you're answering this one, can you tell the audience, again, yeah. we, we would have not have introduced you at this point. So can you tell them <laughs> in this answer why this is actually coming from a, a, a educated background in resale um, and yeah. sort of give your history in resale on this? Yeah, yeah. So started my career at Sotheby's working with single owner collections. So these just like massive, really cool, really fascinating collections. Sotheby's didn't really sell anything under $20,000 because it was so hard to make the margins work for what they were charging. Um, and it's an interesting model, a consignment model where they charge both the buyers and the sellers. Um, and so, but they're, I mean, they're just, they have been doing it for 300 years. They have this massive, insane network um, and sell the coolest shit in the world. Like we were there when they sold, I was there when they sold um, a spaceship. Like, and there was a spaceship in the lobby. Like, <laughs> I cool, you know? remember seeing was, that, yeah. Yeah, and like one time I physically brought a Van Gogh to Amsterdam, like a Van Gogh painting to be authenticated by the Van Gogh Museum. And so it was just like crazy, crazy shit. And it was so cool. And so I wanted in a lot of ways to find a place that was like taking that, taking something and like expanding it with technology, scaling it, making it um, kind of more modern in a way. And I think Sotheby's has done that a bit since I left, but I went to business school to learn how to do that because I didn't know how to. Moved to California, to San Francisco, the Bay without a job and was like, I'm going to get in technology. Um, and started a startup and worked at the real real for almost five years, um, through like their growth and IPO and oversaw two teams there. So the trust and estates team, and then also the, the B2B team and was really interesting about both of those is that most of the real world's business was built on individual consigners. And it really came at this such a cool influx time where customers were demanding resale. You know, they were super excited about it. They wanted to do it at scale. And the real world, I think, did a great job of making it like cool and sexy. Like they made their own brand. Like if you look at the real world, you like recognize it as a brand. And that was very different than like Craigslist or eBay or Facebook Marketplace, where they were just like a marketplace that you kind of had to deal with. Like the real world was itself its own brand. One so of one of the best birthday gifts of those ever given was a gift card to the real real by Sabira and and other colleagues. Um, so yes, there you go. Yes, yes. So, very on so brand. yeah, exactly. Very on brand. Continue, please. That's yes. not to ruin this good momentum we had. No, that just that makes me so excited. And yeah. um, I just think that that there was such a visionary moment, and they did such a good job at scaling that. Um, it was fantastic. And then to work directly with brands like Gucci, like Stella McCartney, the partnerships that were very public there was really the start of brands understanding that there was this massive scale of resale happening that they were not involved in. And then most recently, I met Adam and Wilson, the founders of Recurate, about two and a half years ago, and they created the technology for brands to own that resale. So to directly integrate into a brand's website so that the brand is where you buy and sell those secondhand items. They started out as peer to peer, which is more like the Poshmark or eBay model, and now kind of do all the different aspects. And the thesis that I wholly agree with and, and maybe had a hand in creating is that, um, resale will be as omni-channel as retail is now. So the same way you could go to Nordstrom and you could buy yourself a dress, you could also go to that brand and buy yourself a dress. And you could go in store at Nordstrom, you could buy it online at Nordstrom, you could go to the brand online or in store. Like there's so many ways with which you can buy because people just buy differently. And 
to bring it back to your question about this, like what is this next stage of circularity or what does resale look like when it really does start to become a part of the brand's ethos? To me, that is it, is that you could go in store, you could go online, you could go to the retailer you bought it from, you could go to the brand, you could do it where you're like, I just don't want to deal with it and put it into a bag and get $10 credit, you know? Or you could be like, no, I, I, I know this dress is worth $150 and I want to sell it for $150. So kind of depending on who you are, and what stage you're at, circularity meets you so that you can participate. And we're not quite there yet. Everyone kind of has a little bit of that, but it's mostly fragmented and it's still a little bit difficult and there's still like a knowledge gap there. So when you asked Rhea earlier, like, what is the, you know, like is fashion, almost as fashion, the pioneers in this space? Like, I think they're the start. But I think there's so much room to grow for all industries. Do you have any idea, given your vantage point, at least also from fashion and, and maybe that direct B to C world um, yeah. uh, business to consumer, what are the gaps? What are the gaps you're seeing where your thought process is like, oh man, we're doing all this great stuff here, but in order to get to the next level, we need this type of X, whether that is relationship with the consumer, technology, uh, reverse logistics infrastructure, what what is that next thing to get us to that, that next level from even from a fashion standpoint? Yeah. Oh, good question. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it relates back to what we were talking about a little bit before we recorded is that yeah. this um, I think all of those things you just mentioned need to evolve and work in harmony. Um, but I also think it takes a lot of people showing a lot of ROI, a lot of what um, what customers want, a lot of just truly hard work in, in making these things happen and making them easy in order to move this forward. Um, in general, like brands, but I think a lot of companies like they know what they know and they know that well. And when you start talking about circularity and resale, it's totally out of their wheelhouse. Like they just, mm. they're not resale experts. And so how do you help them understand it? How do you help them engage with it? You know, we made entire playbooks where we were like, hey, this is what your launch email should look like. This is what your one week email should look like. Like all of this information. But in reality, like it is a new side of a business for them. And if they have not um, had any practice in it, it just takes a while um, for people to understand it or and like embrace it, I guess, in a way. So yes, I think the technology needs to get better. I think the integration with reverse logistics, I think Recurious done a great job of integrating directly with the e-com component of it. But like my hope is that, um, you know, these technologies can all kind of come together to make this like, Bloomberg dashboard for a brand. So like, this is, right. this isn't the vision is <laughs> like, you have this dashboard and if you don't know what the Bloomberg dashboard is. It's like, um, it's a Bloomberg terminal, I guess is what they call it. But it has this great dashboard. And it's like all these kind of disparate things that are happening in the world. And it kind of synthesizes them for investors to understand what's going on with the markets or like what could possibly change things in the markets. 
And I'm like, well, why don't brands have a version of that? Like right now, all they see is all this new product. Like they look so closely at like average sale price, the size of the cart, like they look at lifetime value, how often customers buy, discounts, all those things. But literally once the item sells, they have no insight into anything. And so what happens after that? And what I think is really interesting about circularity, not just resale, you know, do people, are people recycling it? You know, are what are people doing? post that sale so that brands can start understanding this more um it's it's more complex than just selling directly new you know the the customer has a journey with this product and brands once they start understanding that can really understand their customer in a deeper way and so pulling kind of all what feels like disparate information together i think is really strong and so um to me that's what the next evolution looks like. But to your point, that takes a lot of, um, it takes brands getting on board. It takes better technology, reverse logistics, kind of the whole nine yards. I'm curious, Karen, when y'all were selling that, like that talk track to me is amazing. It feels really far out as to, you're saying like, it's gonna take so much work to get to that moment in the future. And I guess what I'm curious, when you were selling to your buyer personas, selling the technology of resale to buyer personas at brands, was that part of the talk track or is the talk track resale and like sustainability? What was resonating with who is buying the technology? And then also if you can paint a picture for us, like, is it one person? Is it multiple people? Why is that selling the technology nowadays complex or was it easy? <laughs> Yeah, I think that both of you can understand this and probably listeners out there can understand this is that no one had ever owned resale. Like no one at a brand was like, I'm the resale owner. So when we would like go through and we would create our ideal customer profile or ICP. So we'd be like, these are the brands we think are best for resale for X, Y, and Z reasons. And then we would be like, and here are the seven different positions that could possibly get excited about resale and see some ROI on it. And we're like, you know, most, I like joke, but it's true. Like if I was just selling SaaS to other SaaS companies, it would be like, like if you sell marketing automation, you sell it to the marketing team. Like you said, so you, maybe you sell it to the CFO, but like, that's it. It's just kind of like you that's give it, it to the team that like gets the value from it. And then you probably have to sell somebody senior to like get them to pay for it. But like, that's kind of it. Whereas with this, I'm like, well, shit, like e-com has to be involved. Marketing has to be involved. There's a sustainability team. They have to be involved. Um, you know, like, and sustainability teams are new. So like their scope is totally different at every brand, you know? And so we're like going through all these different people. And then the CEO is like, well, this is a change in the way that we talk to our customers. So I need to be involved. And the CFO is like, how much does this cost? What's the ROI? Like consistently, we would talk to at least seven different teams and re like redo the entire pitch to seven different teams. And when you're selling to brands that you're not actually going to make a ton of money from, that is hard. And it is hard to scale that in general. Um, so I know the podcast is called Selling Circular and it's, it's a, you know, it, it's tough. It's tough to get all those different teams on board. One of the big learning outcomes we had in selling our, our technology when I was at Reapley was figuring out that it needed to be as consultative as possible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. to get people on board with what it would mean and why it was important and mm -hmm. then really hold their hand through the yeah. sales process. 
Um, and that was so new for me. Uh, I wasn't in sales before before Reaply, and I was quasi in sales at Reaply. But it was all about just getting all of those teams that you said, those seven, eight teams to understand, oh, this is why um, the future is a more interconnected right. solution than maybe most brands, most enterprises are ready for. Um, right. And right. and ultimately getting them through that journey of how not only each of them who might pay if they're doing some sort of aggregated budgeting type of model, right. um, which was complicated, um, but ultimately guiding them through that process of even right. buying us. So it was almost a two stage. It was like, this is how you can buy us and this is why you should buy us. Yeah. What learnings did you have along the way to make that easier for a client in that journey? Yeah. And you said, I mean, you almost said it to that playbook is super important. You said that earlier yeah. of like, we can give you this and this is how you could run this. What other learnings were there? Yeah, I were I fantastic team at Recurate that also did the work of um, saying like, okay, we've started noticing these patterns of who needs to sign off, and we started oh, noticing cool. what they need to sign off, and so they would actually outline and be like, yes. here, literally here, <laughs> person I'm talking to on our first call, or the seven meetings that we're gonna need, <laughs> and like here, you know, like, and here's everything that we're gonna go through at each of these stages. And here's all the teams that we think you should bring in. And we, we know you're the decision maker and we know that you're really important, but like, we also know that all these people need to be on board. And so here's all, all the ways that which all the meetings we need to have and who's who we recommend getting into them. And like, let's set up that next one. And it was really interesting because, you know, we had to talk to the e-com team pretty in depth, even before a contract was signed to be like, this is what it looks to touch your cart, to touch your um, inventory, to touch like your backend systems. I mean, one of the differentiators of the real real or of Recurate is that they integrate directly on the backend too. So you could see like black skirt and then you would see black skirt resale on all the black skirt resale items, which is great. It wasn't this separate website or separate, you know, PL. It was all really in your backend, but that also made econ people nervous. And so we had to walk them through that. You know, we had a whole ROI. And guard to your point, we'd be like, and this is how it touches marketing and this is how it touches ops and this is how it touches this, you know, and walk them through this large ROI. I think you made a really good point that um these solutions are probably more holistic than brands are used to dealing with. And they touch more aspects than expected, I think, a lot of times. And so getting all of those aspects on board is you have to be as prescriptive as possible. I, Sabir, I can see a question percolating. Um, I just have one follow-up, which is, you know, that's to this <clears throat> to the systemic nature of a solution now, when it touches sustainability, it reminds me of, I was doing a lot of research uh, in Reapley of ERP systems. These are enterprise mm. resource planning systems that, um, yeah, rightly so for anybody listening, Karen put her head in her hands, um, which was, that was the first instance in an enterprise where this was a system that was being sold by SAP, these sort of major system providers in which all of, all of these departments needed to come together because they knew they could benefit from the right. internal efficiencies of working together and the data that could be collected. Now we're on the other end of this where you have to almost do the same thing, but now yeah. because it touches a consumer, everyone's a little, it's yeah. always like, okay, 
everyone's cool with this. And it's a little bit of a now a much almost the stakes are higher, I guess. Um, yep. And and that's where it's I'm it. That's the fun part about the circularity component to this. And even the sustainability component is because the stakes are higher. I think the incentives are also higher. Um, right. But it means that the, the selling process is because it's new. It's it's that's going to that's the friction right now is how are we doing this? Why are we doing this? And that will be ironed out over the next five to 10 years in a right. major way. But starting with with people like you all. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, being at the forefront is hard. So anybody listening who's doing it. Massive and briefly, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. it's very hard. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I think of this a lot, even with e-com, like e-com came out of the scene literally 25 years ago and brands are still figuring it out. Like there's still no real track Wild. to be like the director of e-com, you know, like sometimes there are people who came from merchandising sometimes they're, oh, I, I don't know, they're all over the place, you know? And so though there is now like an e-com team, I think e-com went through a very similar trajectory that it just took a lot of time for brands and retailers to understand how they played in the space. And to your point, Gar, like it touched all these different aspects. And Ecom was like, how do we, you know, how do we get the same experience online that we would give them in store? You know, like we have, a, we have this whole thing with our stores. So how do we get the same experience online? And it took a long time for a lot of brands to come around to that and to understand it. And, you know, there's a lot of agencies out there that do it for them because they don't bring it in house. Mm. And so there's this whole industry around e-com enablement and, I see that and I see the brand, it's still hard for brands. It's still, it's not their core competency. They're mostly creative people who, um, you know, build visions for, for, for cool, interesting things. And are inspired by building great products and, right, and giving those right. products right, right, right. Yes. And so all of this other kind of stuff is stuff that they, you have to walk them through and help them through in the same way we saw this evolution of e-com. Really, if we're being honest, e-com wasn't a core pillar of a lot of brand strategy until COVID. Like it re really in COVID, they were like, ah, shit, you know, like and the amount of people in 2021 that were like, we've re-platformed because this was too hard. We couldn't scale with what we were doing. And so they moved to Shopify or they moved to something that was like more scalable. It was, re it's, um... I think if circularity is looking for a case study in the work and the um, cross-functional engagement it's going to take, I think e-com is a great example of that. Which I don't know if that gives us hope or not. So sorry. I, well, I was going to say that's it. Sort of gives <laughs> us hope, but also there's a there's a dire lesson in that too, where they only you know a lot of brands only did it when it was do or die, um, right. and and it was like oh we can't make money because all of our retail locations are shut down. Right. Now we need to figure out how to address that consumer. And I hope that doesn't translate to some sort of do or die mechanism yeah. for carbon emissions and reducing impact when sort of really thinking about these systems. But I think you're right. It's going to take that that dire consequence almost. Yeah. And we see a difference. And I don't know if you all, if Ripley's operating in the EU or UK at all. Um, so we see a bit of a difference there because they hmm. are creating laws. And so yeah. Yeah, maybe true. that is their the, the policy stick. The yeah. policy, yeah. And, you know, here in the U.S., I was talking to a brand once and she said, in the U.S., all of you make technology to make money. He, she was like, in in Europe, we make technology to make things better. And I was like, mm, that's pretty up, yes. Um, and we talked about how they are 
you know, and France is, is basically saying you have to have a digital ID, like a digital passport for every unique item. And a lot of it is based on the supply chain aspect of things, but it also tremendously helps in circularity, like being able to track all those things. Like Coach just came out with Coachtopia. I bought one of the bags. I registered it with the Eon digital ID. So like now Coach knows the exact bag that I own and I have this information. I have a great little portal. Like literally if I hold my phone up to my bag, a website pops up and they're like, oh, do you want to sell this item? Do you want to gift this item? And so like then that digital ID will move wherever the item goes. Obviously, I don't want to. I feel very cool and Gen Z when I wear it. So it's sticking with me for a while. But like those kinds of things are happening and you can see brands that that work across you know, across both are like, oh, wait a second, (laughs) like, this is going to be required in Europe. So what does that look like for me here in the US, even brands Hmm. that are based in the US, they're like, this probably won't ever be required in the US. But it's going to be a norm soon that will help us be a part of this change in Europe. So I think that that could be the push that we're too expensive to operate two different systems so you totally. must you know if we're if we're getting pulled by eu then great um right yeah right yeah. right so i hope i hope that that yeah. spurs change kind of a messy question at least like there's like a lot of thoughts happening at one time i guess like the, uh, i will circle back to the question but i want to explain it after asking like how did the brands perceive the customer as their sellers and and thinking about that as like as the rise of influencing and Instagram is, and TikTok is happening, plus the rise of the Poshmarks and almost like the digital proof that resale is happening in the hands of customers that are not the brand, right? They're not representatives of the brand and that's happening right. out there in the world. And now with the technology of digital passports and like giving you the power to resell, like, can you talk a little bit about the evolution of how brands viewed the customer as a seller on their behalf or part of uh, their brand. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um, yeah, it's a, a complex answer. So when I started working at Recurate in 2021, brands were like, mm, this is going to cannibalize our sales. Like they were less focused on the seller aspect and more focused on the buyer aspect. They were like, this is, you know, we're trying to sell a new product. That's their whole shtick is to sell their great new product. And they're like, why would we throw secondhand product up from somebody else that we, you know, they're like, we don't get it. And it was really interesting. We spent a lot of time educating them. We like created a scraper so they could understand their resale marketplace. So we would scrape eBay and Poshmark and ThreadUp and Depop and be like, this is, you know, many brands. It was like, thousands of transactions per month. And then there were two customers on every side of that transaction. There was a seller and a buyer. And we were like, you don't know them at all. And eBay and ThreadUp are all profiting off of the product you made. And to kind of bring it back to my Sotheby's days, like we would often have to have, you know, the Andy Warhol Foundation or the Van Gogh Museum authenticate a piece because they were, I mean, they were so faked so often. And those were the people that had the most information about the full catalog of a, of a, a painter. And so they were like, okay, well, we are the best to do it. And that kind of always came up in my mind when I was at the real real, I was like, so interesting that in the art world, the original creators did have a little piece of this. And in eBay and Poshmark and the real world, they were no piece of it. You know, it was totally happening outside of the understanding of the original creators of this product. 
So in 2021, we started talking to people about that, really on showing them the scale. I think um, a lot of brands are run by people in their 40s and 50s, and resale has really been embraced by people in their teens, 20s, and 30s. And so there was a bit of a disconnect of the, the true scale of what was happening with resale and with the leadership, which I don't blame them. Like It is a bit of a generational thing. It's a newer thing. It's a younger thing. We've Millennials and Gen Zs are much more comfortable with secondhand items, both selling and buying. And so um, we did a lot of education that first year. It was a lot of just like teaching brands what is out there and what was already happening. And I I noticed literally beginning of 2022, there was no more questions about cannibalization. It was like all of a sudden it all started to click for brands. I mean, sure, every once in a while someone would say something. But it was like resale was everywhere. People were talking about it a ton. You know, um, even like TikTok is doing this, like you can buy secondhand items directly on TikTok shop now. Like it was just like everyone wanted a piece of this and brands were like, okay, now we want a piece too. And that was a really interesting shift in behavior. Now, when we talk to brands, they're like, we know we need to do this. We're just figuring out what it looks like for us. Where does it fall on our product roadmap? Where does it fall in budget? Like, what does it look like? Is it in store? Is it online? Like, what are kind of the different flavors of what it looks like for our customers? So this really has been a shift over just less than three years to not if, but when. I love that. I have one more follow-up. Is Do you think that the outcome, because like the whole objective of circularity is to reduce raw material extraction, right? Like, do you believe that that's actually where the brands would head? Is there any sort of impact on procurement of raw material? And one of the things I think about is I was, when I was like looking at the recyclability of packaging and whether or not um, customers want to recycle um, like their Apple packaging, for example, yeah. like why would they keep it versus why they throw it away? Um, some of the research that I came across was that if you put like a recycle bin next to a person, an employee, they feel good about recycling. So they use more paper, right? It's just like that, <laughs> that like, so the whole objective just goes out the door because psychologically we've not created the right incentives or the right system to actually motivate what we're trying to get to, which is a reduction right. in raw material extraction. So where do you, A, where do you see the brands going? Like, are they actually thinking about that or is it all in service of increasing new sales? If, if I could too, before your answer, Karen, if anybody's listening and curious about too, what they can Google, this is, I mean, is this commonly known as like the rebound effect? If I, if I remember this correctly, that someone can Google this and it's a good knock against circularity in a lot of ways that this is what people, it, it, it comes up often um, that it's like, it's this idea that, oh, I'm. I'm being more efficient and less intensive and I can potentially do more if I'm less intensive. So, um, but Karen, please, I'd love your thoughts. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'll say that we did a, re we did like a resale report. We did a research report at Recurate. Depop has done one. ThreadUp has done a couple, done quite a few. And all, all signs point to customers buy less new if they shop secondhand. And so it is not like a, oh, I'm buying this secondhand item and I'm going to buy this new item. It's like, oh, I bought this secondhand item instead of buying a new item. So um, 
And there's, there's so many different motivating factors and like every, I think resale report you'll read, we'll talk about different ones. Some people care about sustainability. Some people just want to find a unique, interesting piece. Like some people, honestly, a lot of people, it's just about the money. Like they can't afford new items. And so this is their way of getting the higher quality item at a lower price point. So there's just a lot of different reasons. So I think that's on one side of it. When you think about like the customer engagement, like customers are buying secondhand instead of new. Does that mean that they are stopping buying new altogether? No, like they still buy new. I will say the younger you get, the the more we saw that customers were really focused on buying secondhand. We um, kind of coined this term called circulars and they were the customers that bought and sold. So the, you know, everyone kinds of thinks like, oh, when in resale, like you're either a seller or a buyer. And what we saw is like this Gen Z in particular under 30, they're much more likely to be circulars. Like they buy with the intention of knowing what the resale value is that then they can sell it. And so they are truly embracing that circularity. So to me, that's on the customer side and so cool to see. And also I do usually use the F-bomb quite a bit, but I feel like I'm keeping this PG. So if if I had used it, it would be really effing cool to see. It's so effing cool to see that. And um, I'm like so proud of this generation for having that as one of their values and not compromising. I think it's a very cool thing to see. The other aspect is how it changes brand behavior and what Mm -hmm. that looks like. And I think that is something that rightfully so there's been a lot of criticism in, in the news or in the press about is like, how does this change how brands behave? Like if they were making hundred units last year, they launched a resale program and they made 150 units this year. How good was that? You know, and they sold 25 units in resale, like, cool. Like now they've just sold 175 units. Like there's more shit out there. And I think this is where it's, you know, back to original part of our conversation is that this is a cross-functional way of changing the way you engage with a customer. And so the two main ways that we see brands currently, not that many, but brands currently doing this, and then hopefully more brands in the future, the first one is getting that product information back. So seeing like oh, in all of the 2021 bags, the strap started to fall apart. And like, you could see it in the customer description. Like when they write their, sell their item, they're like, the strap's falling apart a bit, you know? And like, you can analyze that and pull back those insights to a brand and they can be like, oh, that strap does not have the longevity as the, as the rest of the bag. And like, we need to upgrade that. And that's something a lot of brands do with um, like on a, on a minor level, you know, like if they skip customer feedback or things like that, but not at scale. So to me, resale is a lot of that product longevity feedback at scale and they can understand that and then what we really want to see and honestly haven't seen a ton of but would love to see more of and this is i think really where resale changes the game is um supplementing demand so in the same example kind of as someone was using before like if a brand thinks that they'll sell 100 shoes next year they often make 120 because they're like well we just want to make sure that we make enough for what demand could be and oftentimes they sell 75 or 80 and then you have this gap where they have a bunch of leftover items and they discount them or they sell them to jobbers or kind of all different places and so what resale could do is say like hey if you think you're going to sell a hundred, make a hundred. And if your demand is 120, 
email all those customers who bought it and say like, hey, there is demand for your product. And say like, if you put it on the resale marketplace, you're gonna get a strong return on it. If you're not using it and you don't want, to want it anymore. And then you have an entire depth of customers to tap into for that extra 20% in demand. And so you can, you can push to the resale marketplace. Like we don't have this new anymore, but you can buy it secondhand here and here are all the items. And that's the cool part of being, about being integrated is that all that information is together on your back end. So short answer is like, we're at the nascent stages. This hasn't really happened yet, but ideally you can get to the place where instead of overproducing consistently with the hope that demand meets that overproduction, you can start producing more at what you think demand will be and supplementing that extra demand with resale. I really like that. Um, I have one more question about how the brands thought about rental companies like yeah. that are buying their brands and then selling them to consumers on the regular. Um, do they see that as comp competition? Do they see that as an opportunity for themselves? Where are the brands heads at there? Yeah, I think it's changed. Like brands we've talked to that have, um, you know, items on Rent the Runway or things like that. Like a lot of them were involved in those sales. Like it wasn't like Rent the Runway just went to Nordstrom and bought those pieces. Like they were bought them directly from a brand or the brand made specific pieces for that. I think it was really interesting to talk to a brand that begged for condition information back because they wanted to know like what were the faults in the products after they were worn 10 or 12 times? Like what was falling, you know, what, what hem was falling apart? Things like data. that. Data, data, yeah. data, yeah. Super, super helpful. Um, I think that from like, so from a brand perspective, I think it's very similar to what we just talked about, like getting that information back, getting that understanding to make better, higher quality product longer term. From a customer standpoint, I think a lot of them saw it similar to resale and that it's an entry point for customers who can't afford their full price items. You know, um, we see this a lot. One of our first brands was Mara Hoffman. Mara is fantastic, a visionary, very cool woman, very chance to meet her. We did an event together and I'll, everyone was like, we love her. She's so cool, so interesting. And she said like, I just don't understand why everybody's not doing resale. I was like, you and me girl, but we both feel that way. But um, she really understands that it's $600. Her dresses are not for everyone. They are special occasion dresses and they are expensive. So when those items get resold for $300, it's, a, it's a, a more accessible price point for these pieces. She's like very size inclusive. She really believes that people deserve to wear beautiful things, but those beautiful things can't be made in a sustainable way at $20. So this is kind of their way of being more accessible. So it's, um, and, and I would say Rent the Runway is probably very similar and that you can rent or newly or things like that. You can rent these really fantastic pieces just at that lower price point. We're at time. Um, oh, and I, what an amazing conversation. I, I feel like I was also listening to both of you and learning as much. So it was great. Um, that's, that's my perfect podcast. Um, well, thank you so much, Karen, for joining us. Uh, we, I look forward to having you on again as well with Sabira. And, um, at some point again, we will continue to follow up too with more updates on your journey in resale. And then yeah. we can, uh, we can continue to update the audience that way. Love it. So great to see you too. Thank yes. you so much for having me. Man, this is like Friday morning brain was working hard, but I love it. It's great. Hopefully Good. rejuvenating. Yes. <laughs> Not draining. Yes. Oh yeah, definitely. I feel like every time I have a gar, I'm like, oh, I have 70 million ideas now. <laughs> um, 
I was like, I got to do all this shit. Um, anyways, I, so I hope that may always be the case. That, that's my goal. <laughs> yeah, that I can. Yes. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank of course. You.